0: Well, again, good morning, good morning, and uh, welcome for those of you who are here, for those joining us online. My name is George Davis. Thank you for being part of our service this uh, Sunday, even. It was great to celebrate with our seniors, and they're kind of having additional time together uh, in another part of the building, so we're excited for them. I know my wife and I look forward to having them over uh, during the summer. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Ephesians chapter two, Ephesians chapter two. Uh, as you're turning there, I want, I want you to do this thought experiment with me. I know some of us are going to be traveling during the summer. Uh, and just, just for the sake of this little exercise, envision the idea that wherever you're traveling this, this summer will entail you getting on a plane. So just for a moment, imagine with me getting on a plane and you find yourself seated to this very athletic, very uh, muscular young guy. Really impressive young guy, clearly in his late 20s. So you're seated next to this guy, and in the course of kind of taking off, you start a conversation, and you ask him what he does, and he tells you he is a football player. Now, I realize you might say that well, that, that would never happen, and I beg to differ. Two weeks ago, Rose and I were flying to Texas for a family event, and we ended up on the same plane as Micah Parsons, Penn State graduate now of the Dallas Cowboys. Okay, no booing. Thank you. And uh, I didn't want to just kind of prematurely cut that off. But uh, yeah, we were, we were on the same flight. Now, of course, he was in first class. We were not. But we were on the same plane. So, okay, so you're seated next to this guy. And in the course of the conversation, he says he's a football player. And, and undoubtedly, your next question is probably going to be, so which team do you play for? And he says, I, I, don't, I don't play for a team. I'm just in training. Now, maybe you're a football fan and you realize, well, you know, we just had the NFL draft. Maybe he was hoping to get drafted. Maybe he's he's training so that he can kind of get an invitation to a training camp this summer, perhaps get on as a free agent or that sort of thing. Or maybe he's, you know, thinking about other professional leagues where he could play the USFL or other kinds of opportunities like that. And and so as a follow-up question, you ask something like, so where would you like to play? Or which team would you like to play for? Or, you know, which which you know, which league are you hoping to become a part of? And he says, well, I'm not planning on joining a team. I'm, I'm just training. I'm a football player. Now, this is the point where you look at me and say, George, this, this little exercise doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> that, that, that would just never happen. There's a, a disconnect here. You would never have a conversation with someone who says he's a football player but has no interest in being a part of a team. Now, if for a moment you kind of feel a certain disconnection, if you say that's just a silly story, just just hold on to that for a moment. Because that's actually going to take us to what we're going to be talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 today. You see, we're in this series called Resurrection as a Way of Life. We're taking six Sundays after Easter to look at different ways in which the New Testament unpacks the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're coming to see that that as the New Testament tells the story of Jesus, the resurrection, it's not just one event that we celebrate on Easter every year. It is an event that actually leads us into an entirely new era. And one of the realities of that new era is this. This new era creates... A new community. And one of the implications of that. Is this statement. I can't take my faith seriously. Without taking us seriously. You can't take your faith seriously. Without taking us seriously. Even as it seems incoherent to think about a guy in a plane talking about being a football player but never interested in joining a team, from the perspective of the New Testament it is equally and even more incoherent to talk about being a follower of Jesus without being connected to a local church community, without being a part of a community where people are following Jesus together. Because the reality is this is what the resurrection does. One of the things the resurrection of Jesus does, it creates new community. Now, there are many places that we could kind of see this in the pages of Scripture. I'm just going to take you to one of them. And um, the passage I want us to look at now is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, as we come to this passage, let me remind you how Paul opens the second chapter of Ephesians. Paul talks about the reality that, that we are... We're participants in a very broken world. In fact, it begins by saying, remember, you, you, before you became followers of Christ, you were, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. You were dead in your old way of living. You were dead in your relationship with God. You were dead in simply being defined by all the experiences of your life and how they may have moved your life in unhealthy directions. You were dead. And it, it's a very bleak picture of kind of the culture, the brokenness of the world in which we are part. But, but Paul's point isn't simply to take us down and kind of foster depression. Paul's point is then to show us the grandeur, the wonder, the marvel of the solution, which is the work of Jesus Christ. And this, this pivot between problem and solution begins in, chapter, or excuse me, in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. So let me show you this. But because of his great mercy, our great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, as you look at this passage, there's a lot that Paul says here, and maybe I can unpack it for you this way. Let me unpack it by highlighting the key verbal ideas. And the main kind of big idea of this passage is this idea that he made us alive together with. And interestingly, that's, <laughs> that's a phrase in English. It's, it's actually one word in Greek. So Paul says, look, he has made you alive together with Christ. And then he unpacks that. You say, well, well what does that mean? What does that entail? He unpacks it with the next two verbal ideas. How did did God do that? Well, he he raised us together with Christ, and then he seated us together in the heavenlies. Let's just think about those those ideas for a moment. What exactly is Paul saying? He made us alive together with Christ. As I said, most of that phrase is actually one word in Greek. He made us alive together with Christ. And Paul uses this phrase or uses this term here in Ephesians, and then he will use it one other time in Colossians. Now, here's where this gets really interesting. And all of the known ancient Greek literature, and by the way, that literature is now available in a single database, so you can actually, if you have access to it, you can actually search the entirety of all known ancient Greek literature very quickly. But in all of the known ancient Greek literature... Do you know how many other times this word occurs? The answer is zero. The occurrence in Ephesians, the occurrence in Colossians are the only two known occurrences of this term in all the available literature from this period. And what does that suggest? Here's what it suggests Paul made up this word, he did. It's like, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want you know, he's writing this church, I want you to grab hold of the fact that we are in this together, that we have been made alive together with Jesus Christ. I'm going to take this word, and I'm going to add this word, and I'm going to add a third word, I'm going to put it all together, and I create a new word. Because this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that you have been made alive together with Christ. And again, if I'm going to take my face seriously, so if you're going to take your face seriously, we have to... We have to take us seriously. Okay, Paul, so what exactly does that mean? Well, I think he then unpacks it with the next two verbal ideas, right? He says we have been raised with or we have been raised together with. And then he says we have been seated with. Now, what exactly do those terms mean? Think first about that that, that idea of being raised together with Christ. Remember, he's just talked about the idea that you were dead. right? You you were dead in your sins. But now, through the work of Christ, you, you are the recipient of God's power. So that means through the work of his spirit, you've been made alive. You have been made alive to a new kind of relationship with God. You have been made alive to the journey of transformation. You have been made alive to a new way of life and a new way of interacting with other people. And and Paul will talk about that later in this book. You have been made alive to be a part of what God is doing, a part of his plan. In fact, later in this passage, what does Paul say? He says, look, you you are God's masterpiece. You are his handiwork. You are his creation designed to do good works. So he says, look, you've, what does this mean to be made alive together? You've been raised. That is, you have been empowered. But then he says this. Not only does he say you've been raised together with, but then he says you have been seated together with. Now, what does that mean? Right? This is, this is an image that doesn't necessarily resonate with us. But remember, the, the image is kind of the image of a throne room. Interestingly, earlier in chapter 1, Paul has used these kind of these same two verbal ideas. He said Christ was raised, and then Christ has been seated. Now in chapter 2, he builds on that to say, we have been raised with Christ, and we have been seated with Christ. All of this together. But but what exactly does it mean to be seated in a throne room? Well, the vision of being seated in a throne room is is really, it's a vision of authority. It's a vision of, of opportunity and responsibility. Now, if you were a follower of Jesus, just let that sink in, the idea not only that you have been raised with Christ, but also the idea that we've been seated together with him in the heavenly realm. I realize, well, that just sounds weird. Well, I get that. But maybe think about it along these lines. Isn't it the case that sometimes in certain seasons of life, it just feels like our lives are controlled by factors beyond our control. Have you felt that? Ever found yourself in a job and you're like, yeah, you know, I just can't. Everything's being determined by other people and I'm just kind of stuck in this. Sometimes in, in our family situations, if we're part of families, it feels like so much of our life is beyond our control. with You know, other members of the family and what's going on with them. Have you, you ever just found that? Even the last couple of years, right? We had kind of our freedom taken away. And in so many ways it felt like, you know, we were just having to go along for the ride and, and, and maybe you even feel like that now. And and now Paul's riding this little fledgling community, you know, surrounded by the powerful Roman Empire, and, and yet he says, Look, don't forget, you've been ready, you have been seated with, with authority. And responsibility. You are a part, you have a role to play. I know it may feel like your life is just kind of beyond your control, or you can't do anything about all this stuff, but no, you're a follower of Jesus. You have been seated in the heavenly realm. I mentioned, you know, Rose and I were flying to Texas recently, a couple of weeks ago, so we're flying back. And on the, on the trip back, we, we ended up on different sides of the plane. We were on the same row, but we were just different sides of the plane. And she was on one side, and she was seated in the middle seat. And the guy, the guy seated by the window, turned out to be a guy who had really gone through some, some real challenges in his life. And really some, some hard stuff, really hard stuff. And in the midst of that, he's a guy that right now would describe himself as someone who just doesn't believe in God. He doesn't, you know, he he has no time for Christianity, et cetera, et cetera. And so they got into a conversation. (laughs) And and they talked for the duration of the entire flight. I'm on the other side of the plane. I couldn't hear her. I could hear him. (laughs) Talked about Christianity, the Bible, faith, all this stuff. And at times it got a little heated, but they were, you know, they were just kind of really engaging one another. And he really enjoyed being a part of this conversation. And at one point, remember, he's, he's, on, he's, he's by the window. My wife is in the middle. At one point, he kind of leans up and looks down at the woman who's been sitting in the aisle seat. She's been quiet the whole time. And he says to her, can you believe this? Can you believe what, you know, kind of what she believes? And, and the woman over here says, yes, I can. I'm a Christian. I've been praying quietly since this flight took off for your conversation. (laughs) And then my wife in the middle seat just smiled at him. You're surrounded. (laughs) You know, I love it. And part of the reason, part of the reason I I tell you this, and even my wife said, look, if you're going to tell the story, make sure you mention this. She said, just ask people to pray. I don't know what God's doing in this guy's life, but as you remember that story, just pray for him because I think God may be up to something. But the story is just, just a reminder, you know what? We have been called into this mission. And we're, we're now seated, at the, it doesn't feel that way, but at times when we're seated at the right hand. And with that comes opportunity and responsibility to be a part of what God is doing. So Paul is writing this church and he's reminding them, look, you've got to... You've got to take one another seriously because you have been raised together with Christ. You have been seated with Christ. And all this is, is, is embedded in the truth that we have been made alive together with him. Now with that in mind, let's just talk for a couple of minutes about, about what this looks like, what this involves. And what, I, what I, I just want to do is just very briefly share you three themes from the rest of the book. And then, then I want to give you an action step. And actually, I think it's an action step we, we can learn from the early church, from the Christians who have gone before us many, many decades and centuries ago. So here, here are three themes that, that I want you to sh- see that are associated with really grabbing hold of this truth, that we are in this together. Three themes associated with the truth that if, you know what, if I'm going to take my faith seriously, if you're going to take your faith seriously, we have to take one another seriously. The first theme is this. It is, it's just the theme of commitment. It's fascinating. So in this book, right, Paul has this beautiful explanation about how God is is bringing us together. And then you get to the second part of the book, and, and Paul then begins to unpack the implications of that. And early in the second part of the book, here's one of the things he says. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace make every effort the language he uses here means this okay you're gonna gonna pay attention to this right you're gonna have to work at this this won't naturally come easily to you you gotta make an effort to take seriously what i've been talking about and and you want to push back a little bit paul you've just you've just spoken eloquently right about how all of us we've been made alive together with christ He's used such powerful language and imagery. And, and Paul, if this is what God is doing, why is this going to be hard? Why do I need to make an effort? You imply this could be difficult times. Yes, it's going to be difficult at times. Well, why is that? Well, well, really, Paul gives us two answers to that. First of all, remember how he starts the, what we call the second chapter of the book, right? He talks about the brokenness of our culture and the, the sinfulness of our culture and even the reality that, you know, there... There's spiritual forces at work and creating and disrupting the structures of society. And, and even today, as we kind of perhaps feel like, yeah, things just feel like they're falling apart. I mean, the majority of Americans feel like our country's moving in the wrong direction. and Even as now, you know, we've got, uh, we've got primaries coming up this week. Let me encourage you to be a part of that. And then we've got a general election. But as we move to the election, you're going you're to feel more of the tension. We watch it on TV. We see it in the ads. And, and so we live, we live in a cultural moment that in so many ways pulls people apart, creates antagonism and division. And Paul says, yeah, this is, this. I've been talking about this long ago, right? He said, this is, this is, this is the reality of the world we live in. So that doesn't surprise Paul. But, but the truth is, as a church, as a community, since we have to live in this broader culture, sometimes that, that seeps into our relationships as well. So that's one of the reasons why we've got to make an effort to keep the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. But here's a second reason, and perhaps a more important reason, why we've got to make an effort to do this. The second reason is this. The message of the gospel brings different kinds of people together. The message of the gospel brings different kinds of people together. So, I mean, if you continue reading in chapter 2, here's what becomes apparent. Paul talks about, you know what, you've been created for good works, right? You've been made alive together with Christ so that you can do good works. And then immediately, Paul talks about the fact that through the gospel, Jews and Gentiles have been brought together. And he says the barrier of hostility has been brought down. The wall of hostility has been taken down. Through the peace that Jesus Christ establishes. Now this means very little to us, but we need to understand one of the problems in the Ephesian church was the fact we've got, we've got Jews and Gentiles coming in together, becoming followers of Jesus, and they're coming from different places culturally. They're coming from experiences where they often were isolated from the other and even had negative views about the other. And now Jesus is saying, "No, the I mean, Paul is saying, look, the, the gospel brings different kinds of people together. And that wall of hostility has come down. Again, that doesn't mean much to us, but it's a powerful image because in the ancient temple in Jerusalem, there was a wall, a barrier that separated the section where Gentiles were able to go versus the section where Jews were able to go. And there were even signs at the very entrances, you, you can't go past this barrier. You walk through this door on fear of death. And using that imagery, Paul says, no, this wall of separation has come down. And what Paul is getting at is the different ways the gospel brings different kinds of people together. Different, right? People from different backgrounds, people from different generations, people that, you know, on certain, for instance, political issues, can look at things differently, even if they're committed to Scripture. And The gospel brings different people together, but if we are going to embrace that well, it's going to take commitment on our part. It just is. And, and the necessity of commitment leads to just two other things that I want to highlight for you very quickly. What does it look like for me to take us seriously? Well, there's a commitment involved, but I, I think also uh, there's the importance of communication. Again, as you move through the rest of the book, Paul begins to unpack what this resurrection life looks like. What this life of us doing life together looks like. And, and notice what he says, familiar wor- uh, verb, uh, words in Ephesians chapter 4. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Now again remember the people receiving this letter. We got a congregation of people who have come from different backgrounds, backgrounds where you often put a question mark over those people, whoever those, whichever side you were, right? and i can only imagine that in bringing people together at times the words they just weren't positive right when you bring people together from these different backgrounds it's so easy right from a gentile perspective to look at look at the the jewish side of the aisle and say look you people you're just uptight you're legalistic you gotta let go of this stuff likewise, from a Jewish perspective, look at these, looking at these Gentiles that have now, now, now become part of this movement to say, look, you're just like your pagan neighbors. You guys aren't committed. And I'm sure part of the reason Paul says this is, you know what, there have been some unhealthy words. This kind of stuff has taken place. And Paul says, look, if we've been made alive together. It means we need to be committed to one another, and and part of that commitment is we've got to learn to talk to one another. Right? We have to, (laughs) we've got to learn to be for one another. And the truth is, even today, we can can develop unhealthy patterns of interacting and communicating. Sarcasm, gossip, biting humor, passive-aggressive comments, outright hostility. And let me, just, let me just encourage you, if you've kind of, you developed one of those patterns, just, just, you need to be challenged by this passage. Because, see, if we're, we're going to take our faith seriously, we've got to take one another seriously. We have to take us seriously. And that includes the area of communication. But not only do we see that, and let me just mention something as a third dimension of what this looks like. I think it, you know, taking, taking the us seriously includes commitment, includes communication, but it also includes dealing with conflict. So we continue reading in chapter 4, and as we continue reading, here's what we encounter. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. And most likely, some of, you know, some of this was taking place right you bring different people together different backgrounds and this is this is kind of what you get paul says be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in christ god forgave you so Paul says, Look, you've got to learn to engage each other well. I mean, he realizes, right? You bring different kinds of people together, which the gospel does. That's going to create conflict. We can't be surprised by that. This is, we bring different people from different backgrounds, different ages, different stages of life, certain different perspectives on certain things. And Okay, so that's, that's church. And that will create conflict. <laughs> but we need to learn to deal with it. And what Paul is saying is, look, don't let this escalate. Right? Sometimes it escalates externally through rage, anger, malicious words, gossip. Sometimes it rages internally through bitterness, isolation, avoidance. And Paul is saying, look, don't don't get comfortable with those kinds of patterns of interaction. Be willing to engage. Be willing to have hard conversations to do so in kindness. So again, here's what Paul's saying. Look, we have been, we've been made alive together, right? We've been raised together. We've been seated together. So we have to to take us seriously. And that will tell commitment. It's going to tell how we communicate. It's going to tell how we deal with conflict. Now, having kind of thought in those big terms, what, what I want to leave you with is, is just one practical step. And in many ways, this is, uh, I think it's a step we can learn from the early church, from the early Christian movement. I have a colleague who teaches New Testament and early church history. He's written kind of a fascinating book where he deals with this topic, and, and he, he would argue, you know, this is, this is one of the secret weapons of the early church. This is one of the ways we need to understand how the Christian movement exploded across the Roman Empire. So, what's the one step I'm talking about? (laughs) What can we learn from the early church? Well, simply this. Practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. Again, think, think about the reality of the early Christian movement, right? Here were people coming together from very different backgrounds. Coming together from backgrounds that were often naturally antagonistic to one another. Furthermore, not only that were they coming together and having to learn to get along, they were also coming together in such a way that they would feel the ire and the hostility of Roman culture. And yet in the midst of all of that, they learned how to work together. They learned how to be for one another. They learned how to experience the truth that they had been made alive together with Christ. And I think one of the keys to that history, one of the keys to understanding that movement was the fact that they, they learned to practice hospitality. As Peter writes another early Christian church, in 1 Peter 4, he says this, he says, love one another deeply, for love covers a multitude of sins. I love that, love one another deeply. That's really what we've been talking about, right? Love one another deeply, be committed to one another. Love one another deeply, learn how to communicate well to others, and really be for them. Love one another deeply, learn how to engage conflict, and not just kind of walk away in unhealthy ways, or blow up, or gossip, so all of these, right, all of these are dimensions of loving one another. So Paul, I mean, Peter says, love one another deeply. And then he says this. In the very next sentence, he says, and practice hospitality without grumbling. What does what Peter, Peter say? He's saying, look, here's, here's one of the ways we love one another well. Here's, here's one of the ways we take us seriously. practice hospitality now i think that the the idea of hospitality is 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 a pretty broad term and it, it can look differently in our lives and it can entail all sorts of interactions and activities but but here's kind of the big idea of hospitality in scripture hospitality is simply this hospitality is creating space where strangers can become friends let me repeat that. Hospitality is creating space where strangers can become friends. And as Christians, it's creating space where strangers can become friends right in light of the work of Jesus. In fact, the term, the term used in Scripture basically at a literal level means lover of strangers. That's hospitality. That's what, that's what I think the early church learned to do. So if that's if that's hospitality, let's just kind of talk about what that can look like in our lives. And let me just give you a couple of, let me just briefly just give you a couple of examples. This may sound odd, but but I think one of the one of the ways we practice hospitality is through serving. And here's why I say that. Serving can give us an opportunity to meet new people. Serving can kind of give us an opportunity to kind of move in different circles. Serving gives us an opportunity to kind of invest in others in different ways. And in so doing, we're really creating space for for relationships to develop. So I will just remind you, right, we've got a crew coming up, our, our week with kids coming up in June, and there are all kinds of ways for you to serve and and you can you know you don't have to serve every night. You can serve in different capacities that, that fits for your schedule. But that's just a great opportunity for you to practice hospitality, to create some space, right? To just invest in maybe some people you don't know yet. I'll give you another example, just in the life of our church. And uh, some of you may want to connect with this, whether you realize it or not. You know, as a church family, we 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 network with other kinds of ministry organizations, both locally and nationally and internationally, and and through one of those connections, uh, this week we have welcomed a refugee family from the Middle East, a family of seven, to our community. They arrived on Monday, Uh, they're living in one of the homes that we own, one of our missions homes, and first of all, we've already kind of had a team develop of almost 20 people that's going to be a part of this, just kind of, you know, showing hospitality to this family, uh, just loving on them from the... Position of the good news of Jesus Christ, and and some of you are already a part of that. Some of that's you know just taking people to the store. We've got you know we're going to have a group taking them to the Social Security office tomorrow tomorrow to get registered. So some of it is that, and and uh, so we've already got a good team developing. If you would like to be a part of that, you could just uh, let Dave Hyatt know. You know, hey, I can drive, or maybe you would say I've got some experience teaching English as a second language. Uh, and I would just put out a special plea, if, if you know Arabic, <laughs> we would love to talk with you, because, uh, you, you know, Google Translate only gets you so far, so, because uh, they speak no English. And so this, you know, again, just another way to kind of live out this concept of hospitality. Now, at a broader level, um, maybe some other things you could do. Maybe it's just trying to be a little more attuned on Sundays when I'm here to, to introduce myself to someone I don't know, and just hey, or someone I've seen. It's like I still haven't gotten your name, and and that can just be—you never know. I mean, sometimes it's just we introduce, and well, I wave, but sometimes you hear a story. Sometimes there's a connection, and so just become a little more intentional in that. For some of us, we're you know we're already part of, of groups in the life of our church, and and maybe. Um, you know, maybe there's someone in your group you just like to kind of follow up with. I mean, one of the most disappointing things we can have in terms of a church experience is this. Maybe I'm in a group and I share a need or request. And, you know, people pray for me about that need or request at that moment, but nobody ever follows up. And, and so how are you doing? I just wanted to check in. You kind of, you know, and, and and so maybe there are opportunities to do that. Maybe there's somebody you already know, but, you know, you've never really heard their story. And So what if you, hey, Let's hand them over, or let's do coffee. I mean, when when was the last time you had somebody over from church just to kind of connect? What might that look like for you? And for some, maybe kind of the next step you need to take is, you know, on a regular basis, we give people an opportunity to try out one of our Live Love Lead groups, kind of a starter group. That's going to be coming up at the end of the summer, and I'm going to go ahead and put that on your radar now. Because that could be a step for you. See, that, this is what it looks like for us, but see, this, this was this, kind of the secret weapon of the early church because the reality was this. I think the, the early Christians just realized, you know what? We have been welcomed in by the hospitality of God. And Paul even alludes to that in Ephesians 2 when he says, you know what? You used to be distant. You used to be separated, but God has brought you in, right? You've been welcomed in, and now as recipients of God's hospitality, how can you live that out in the lives of one another? And as you do that, you're making tangible the fact that we have been made alive together. Now as you think about that, let let, let me just give you really quickly a diagnostic question that that I've been found helpful. I mean, as, as prepared this series, and then even earlier thinking about this message on the idea that resurrection creates community, I've kind of come up with this diagnostic question, which is something I'm going to ask myself periodically, and if this is helpful for you, I just want to pass it on. And here's the background of the question. Again, acknowledge we live in a time of uh, yeah, fragmentation, polarization, tribalism, however you want to describe that. And I think one of the realities of, of this season is, it's, isn't, let's be honest, isn't it easy just to label people? We label people ideologically, politically, choices they make, and we just kind of put, them, we just kind of put a label on them. And the reality is this. If I put a label on you, it it makes it easier to dismiss you. You're just part of that group. And if you think hard enough, maybe even this last week, at some point we have conversations about (laughs) people with labels, right? That group, that political party, right? Even as we're talking about the election, those people or whatever. So here's the question I've started asking myself. And again, if this is helpful for you, I would encourage you to use this question as well. The question is this. Am I spending more time labeling Are listening? Am I spending more time labeling or listening? You see, I I can put a label on you and just kind of dismiss you. But if if I actually spend time with you, I've got an opportunity to hear your story, and that changes things. Those are two very different entities. And the truth is, if you spend a lot of time labeling, maybe you need to figure out what does it look like for you to spend more time listening. Practicing hospitality in such a way that, you know, you just got to know other people, to hear their story. I think about one of the really meaningful relationships in my life, and one of the things I appreciate about this relationship is my friend, on a regular basis, will ask me this question, tell me more. We'll be talking about something, and he will draw me out. And what what I experience in that conversation is biblical hospitality what I experience is somebody welcoming me in to hear my story and at times truly speaking the truth of Christianity into my story. So am I spending more time listening or am I spending more time labeling? And all that leads to this final question and let me just see, let me just kind of make this whole thing concrete. Again, we talked about the idea that Christ, uh, through God's work we are made alive together with Christ. So here's the question. So what's one thing you can do this summer to practice hospitality? What's one thing you can do this summer to practice hospitality? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we read these uh, words written to that church in Ephesus, and I can only imagine some of the tension that might have happened some of that which seems to be alluded to in various parts of this letter and yet in the midst of all that reality in the midst of the conflict the messiness uh, paul reminds us and he reminds them look you you've been you've been made alive together with christ father i pray we could we could really grab hold of this and for some of us even now maybe there, there are some Relationships or a relationship that we kind of just need to, hey, I just need to check in on this person. Or I wanna, I'd love to get together with, let's do coffee or let's do something together. Maybe we just need to do that. And if that's the case, would your spirit just kind of bring that to mind? And I pray we would grab hold of that, not just as some random idea, but kind of as a prompting from your spirit. Father, may we see that as your church community, we've been made alive together. And may we embrace that truth. Because the resurrection we celebrate isn't simply something that happens on Easter. It's an event that has brought us into a new way of life that includes a new community. So given that truth, may we be people who practice biblical hospitality in Jesus' name. Again, I want to thank you for joining us at this time. I'm going to invite members of our prayer team to the front. And if we we can even pray with you about what this might look like in your life, we'd love to have the opportunity to do that. Also, as you leave, our ushers are going to be at the door. They'll be receiving uh, an offering for our Compassion Fund, which goes to kind of help people in need in our community and in the broader community. So thank you for your help with that. And now as you go, let me just remind you of this simple big idea, that if, if I'm to take my faith seriously... If you're to take your faith seriously, we have to take one another seriously. Amen.